Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. I've interviewed about 15 people for my current season on propaganda and conspiracies. What's interesting to me is how I go through this mimetic process every time I reach out to someone for an interview, because a lot of the people that I'm contacting seem really important. I'm contacting authors, speakers, and social media personalities who have some sort of a following, while I'm a nobody podcaster. So there are all kinds of feelings of inadequacy, jealousy, frustration at being turned down sometimes, and all kinds of things that just accompany reaching out for an interview. There's a lot of internal stuff that I have to deal with every time I ask for an interview. I've been turned down a lot this season. Some of it, I'm sure, is because important people have limited time and resources, and speaking with me probably isn't the wisest thing for them to do. It's not the best use of their time or skills. But I've also had many people straight up ignore me. And then there was this one person who told me, honestly, what I'm sure a lot of other people were thinking. She told me that she checked out my podcast, and she didn't want to do the interview because I was a Christian, and that wouldn't be good for her image or her sales. Now. I appreciated the honesty. Truly, I did. I was glad that she just was was straight with me. But it also clarified how much of a game the realm of information is. Many of these authors or social media personalities, they take one look at my podcast and know that they don't want to do an interview with me, if for no other reason, because I'm too much of something. I'm too religious, too far right, too far left, whatever it is. Because you can look at my podcast, and depending on what episode you look at, you can kind of get whatever you want out of it. This season, I had the privilege of interviewing a wide range of individuals, from conservative Christians to liberal atheists. I've had capitalists and communists on. I've had at least one gay individual, minorities, women, men, Democrats, anarchists, libertarians, pacifists, veterans, government workers, and an individual whose parents were both executed by the government. I mean, we have a wide range of representation for this season, which is exactly what I was shooting for, because propaganda thrives on polarization, and we want to cut through that as much as we can. What I found beautiful about the journey I've been on this season is that almost all of the interviewees that I've been able to talk with have been of a certain mindset or character. They've largely been individuals who are willing to ignore image and seek truth. They might not all land at the same place in regard to where truth leads to, but they almost all seem to be seekers of truth. And one of the biggest shockers for me in regard to obtaining an interview uh, was when Robert Mirapol agreed to chat with me. I emailed him and I received the most gracious response back quite quickly. Here was this man, a man whose parents were executed by the state, in large part because of the Christian political element and our fervor against communism, and he was willing to speak with me, the host of an overtly Christian podcast. Now that couldn't possibly make him popular in his circles if such a thing ever got out. Yet, who I seemed to be on paper had no bearing on Robert's willingness to have a discussion with me. The point is... Pretty much everyone that I've talked with this season has been a moderate in a certain sense. I can think of maybe one exception when I look back over my interviews. Now, I don't mean that they were moderates in terms of their politics or their theology. I mean that they seem to be moderates in terms of their epistemology. 
they're willing to hold their beliefs up under scrutiny and present those ideas on a platform irrespective of how unimportant I appear, how threatening my beliefs might be to their image, or anything else of that sort. They simply are happy to talk about beliefs that they hold dear because truth matters to them. And truth comes about through evaluating ideas, not through isolating ideas in affirming echo chambers. Today's guest, David Gronoski, fits in with everything that I've just said. He's way too important to be giving me the time of day, yet he very quickly agreed to sit down and have a discussion with me. I asked David to a conversation because he has a solid background in an ideology I've long wanted to delve into, but just never got around to it. Rene Girard and the idea of mimesis. If you're at all familiar with the topic of mimesis, you'll know that much of what the concept focuses on has a strong relation to issues of violence and nonviolence, hence my initial curiosity about it quite a while back. But as I've begun to listen to David unpack mimesis, and by the way, thanks to Jesse for recommending David's show to me, anyway, as David unpacked mimesis for me, I've been amazed at how much overlap there is with concepts centered around propaganda. And I suppose that shouldn't be too surprising because propaganda, like violence, is just another form of manipulation, coercion, and control. So hopefully we'll be able to draw out some of those big ideas and connections in this discussion. So without further ado, here is the interview with David Gronoski. I came across your work recently because there was somebody who listens to my podcast and um, they they saw that I kind of had on my wish list that I wanted to do an episode on my Mises, but I told him that um, you know I probably wasn't going to end up getting to that because to to really dig into Gerard and and that whole philosophy would take quite a lot of legwork and and I do a whole lot of other research and that just wasn't going to be something that happened. But uh, this person said that I really needed to check you out. Because, um, I mean, that's kind of your wheelhouse. That's really what you focus on doing. So I uh, I started listening to some of your episodes. I kind of, I just put it on two speed and I listened to like probably 10 in a day. And it, I loved it. And it was exactly what I was looking for. So I was glad that you were able to uh, to make the time to, to come on and chat with me. Thanks. So um, before I start grilling you though, I would love for you to just give yourself a brief introduction, whatever you think is important, and talk a little bit about what you do. I'm David Gronoski, and I'm a writer, a podcaster, radio host. I do some video production for different film series that I do called Things Hidden. My podcast is called Things Hidden, which is anthropological. My radio show is called A Neighbor's Choice, currently online only as we are taking a break from terrestrial radio on that piece for now. Um, and then I um, have a podcast on seed oil called Seed Oil Survival, which gets into 90% of diseases are caused by this chronic disease. Chronic diseases have been caused in the last 100 years by this ingredient. And then um, we explore that. We bring scientists together, doctors, everything for that, researchers. And then we also do Science and You, which is our physics show with new physics and engineers. And we look for the Galileos of our time. <clears throat> we also do uh, The Science, which is a series about uh, public health policy and mismanagement of 
that field and, and things we can do to make sure that this uh, atrocity never happens again, which they're probably looking forward to see what happens next. And we have to look forward to being smarter. And all of this goes back to what you talked about, which is mimesis, which is human behavior and human nature. And that's what draws our desires. And it's not something that is hard really to grasp. It's something that's very intuitive to understand, which is that we desire what other people desire. And we, that includes what we think they want to acquire, including their status and the things that they seem to be wanting. All right. So, so you would summarize mimesis as uh, desiring what other people desire, basically. What's that? Say, say just uh, focus, make sure I'm hearing. Uh, desiring what other people desire. Yeah. It, when you desire. Okay. So when we have, we have needs, right? Needs are what we would say are your basic survival things. You need shelter, food, water, things like that. Mating. Those are things that are needs are more instinctual. But then after that, you have a lot of other things that are called wants. And those things are not really instinctual as such. Those are a, That's a layer of want that's added on top of your need instinctual mechanisms. And that want is something that we are, we are designed to be very masterful at imitating one another. That's how we learn language. That's how we learn um, etiquette customs and that's how we learn values conflict resolution all those things music art painting on the cave all those things have mimesis involved with them but then you can imagine how mimesis can also be negative because it's very hard to get out of a conflict once you get caught up into it when you're really getting on each other's nerves and the closer you are to one another, the more often you can have conflict with one another. Uh, and that's why they say good fences make good neighbors. Remember what Rand Paul had to go through where he was viciously tackled by that crazed neighbor because they had the yard clippings where he said his yard clippings were one inch on top of his property. That's a metaphor for everything you see with undifferentiation creating rivalry. So, um, you know, there are lots of places that, uh, that we could go, but I think for me, um, wanting to deal with propaganda, listening to, to some of your episodes, I thought that the clearest overlap to start with, uh, in regard to propaganda and mimesis was it, the idea of polarization. So another French guy, uh, who is a contemporary with, uh, Gerard, actually, uh, Jacques Ellul, he uh, he talks a bit about propaganda, and he explains how it thrives on this uh, this polarization. And part of the way that he explains that is he says that, well, um, if you have nuance, if you don't, if you lack this polarization, and instead you have nuance, and you really have to think through things, then what nuance does is it's going to delay your instinct. It's going to delay your response. And if it delays your response, then um, that might lead to an undesirable outcome for the propagandist. Because if I hesitate to ask the question, why should I hate that person, then I might not end up voting the right way, or I might not end up supporting the next war because I'm, I'm questioning, I'm hesitating. So propagandists want the outcome to be assured. They want uh, reaction. And, and they do that 
through reflex. So I think Alul is very insightful in regard to uh, the idea of polarization in that that's what happens, but he doesn't really get too much into the mechanisms that make us susceptible to polarization. And I think that's where Gerard's work comes in and can be helpful. So could you maybe explain through the lens of Gerard, like why are humans susceptible to polarization? Well, you've got, um, it was interesting. You said nuance. I thought, well, that's what Christianity brought into the world of mythology. You know, is nuance. Because when you are polarized against a common enemy or a scapegoat, um, it's black or white kind of thing. You know, that's the person that's polluted our community, or that's the person who's been cursed by the gods, or that's the person who's hostile, or that's the person who's created um, chaos with breaking taboos by stealing or mating with animals or something that has crossed the line of differentiation in this, in the community. Whatever the accusation is that snowballs into mimetic contagion of aggression, against a common threat, a common scapegoat. Nuance can quickly dissolve that unanimity consensus that this person is to blame for the problems of the community. It's precisely that which Christianity brings into the conversation of culture and allows for people to say, well, what about the death penalty? What about this heinous murderer? What about this particular piece of information that calls into question their culpability? And what about this person that we've captured in the moment of war as a war prisoner? Do they deserve to be tortured to pieces, even though they were trying to kill our people and take over our land? Or do they deserve certain rights? There's nuance. Christianity brings in nuance because Christianity is Holy Spirit community. The word Holy Spirit, paraclete, means defender, the defense attorney of humanity. The Holy Spirit is the defense spirit of, a, of the world, and it builds community based on figuring out how to get human beings to unite based on nonviolent creativity rather than creative uh, or violent creativity. You know, violent creativity is what the scapegoat mechanism is about. There was another guy who um, was a contemporary of Rene Girard who would call it. Um, generative, the generative scape, the generative scapegoat mechanism, and that was to indicate kind of precisely that that it, it it creates something out of chaos. When Jesus talks about say, how can Satan cast out Satan, Satan has been considered to be associated with disorder and chaos in a whole host of different thoughts and religions, but. Jesus brings into this idea that Satan can also create order out of chaos through creating a selection of a sacrifice, controlled act of violence, mediated onto a third party instead of discharging onto all against all. And um, so nuance is the contamination of the Christian revelation into the world of mythology, right? And so propaganda is just a is a vestige of mythology that's stripped of its more ostensibly fantastical elements, as we would conceive of them, replaced with sterile bureaucratic concepts like will of the people, 
will of the people, the nation's destiny, <clears throat> general welfare, uh, democracy, liberal order, whatever the word is, right? There's always got to be a word. And that's just to stand in for Odin, Thor, Ra, whatever. It's just mind thinking. It's just word thinking, right? You just you throw an incantation out, and that's the big other, as Jacek says. This this big other that dominates the psychological order of a community, and uh, that big other demands little others, little scapegoats, to be fed. To the you got to think about human beings when they get caught up in mimesis, they become. And, and and they can get to the point where they're like a blob of sameness. And it's almost like they have to eat. They're like Pac-Man. They become this giant blob that has to devour pellets of differentiation to maintain their its sense of togetherness. So they, they that's have like a metaphysical way of describing what's going on in some sense. In a physics way, maybe. Yeah, in, in one of your episodes, you talked about, um, you know, how mimesis can unite a group in its hatred. And so if there's if there's nothing for them to aim their hatred towards, then there's really nothing unifying them anymore. Is that correct? Yeah. And or or if they're if they're aiming their hatred to each other, then there's then that's this that's called that's going to end up in disorderly violence. Right. If everybody doesn't trust each other and everybody is mad and envious and jealous and competitive and obsessed with beating the other and insecure in their emotional state and all this, when they have all that, it's hard to have a cohesive, successful society. And the things that trigger those things are things like scarcity-driven issues like famines and plagues and so forth, but it could be an ordinary. It could be the arrival of a new ethnic group that comes to visit that tribe that creates a little bit of nervousness that can snowball into problems. Um, so they don't, it's not a, it's be careful that a scapegoat mechanism doesn't mean that the people are cynically choosing someone to blame in a plot to slander someone. They truly believe the person is guilty. I mean, we have, I mean, think about today, like people still believe you see all those people stuffing ballots into those drop boxes for ballots and stuff. And they still think that's like, Oh, nothing there. There's no problem. Just, just stuffing things in and people with masks on the stuff, you know, those is completely, that's first class democracy right there. I mean, and, and, it's, and, they, and they believe it because the crowd, including a lot of respectable, and I don't even care. Like that's not even an issue that I'm talking about. And I'm saying it in a vague way to protect your, you know, your platform. But the point is, cause you can't even talk about it without the little fascist book burners trying to get you. But like any intelligent person would, would notice there was something severely bizarre about that whole thing, you know, but I don't even have an opinion about what exactly was going on and all this I really get into that. But the fact that it's not fashionable within conservative ink and even populist ink media to talk about it still um, it, it colors the mimetic uh, atmosphere of wanting to, I don't want to copy that because I don't want to be as considered in the uncool table, the lower social status table of conservative or anti-establishment opinion. And the same thing goes for like the, the COVID thing. They'll say, I have I, I, seen no evidence that, X generic drug helps with this particular disease, right? 
I have yet to see evidence. And yet we know of so many examples of people who did generic drugs or natural things and vitamin D and so forth that did wonderfully with this by the millions. And we know of people who did everything they were supposed to do to it, took every iteration of that failed product that was supposed to be the miracle drug and they're injured and they're having problems and they can't, there's nothing they can do. And yet people will just say, I have not seen any evidence. And they're just saying it. And they believe it with all their heart. Human believe human beings believe in their own BS. And that's what makes them incredibly dangerous when they're in a crowd. Because you can get someone to believe anything about you. We could I could we could we could have a bunch of people bust into your house right now where you're at and just start leveling an accusation about you. And the whole community around you could come out and see what's going on and look in the hallways or you'd come out into the streets and we'd all keep slinging that accusation against you and people would start to oh i guess this guy thought he was a nice guy i thought Derek was a nice neighbor i guess i didn't know the truth about it. people just get contagiously caught up in this hysteria of of, of guilt dislocation and, and discharging and there's a i think there's a physics component to it as well as the psychological component and gerard looks at the anthropological level of it Okay, so yeah, I guess, uh, you know, maybe if we were going to figure out why people are susceptible to polarization, uh, kind of a summary there would be that uh, I think a lot of times we focus on the hatred that a a certain polarized group has, but it's it's not so much the animosity towards other, it's the fact that that animosity unites them to it's not, it's not even just animosity, it's just um, passion in, in general. Because if you think someone truly is the blame, like libertarian scapegoat the state. And so that's interesting. Um, they just scapegoat it as an other. But when you become so obsessed with all things that's wrong come from this person and you truly believe it, you know, you may not feel motivated by hate. You may feel motivated by righteous uh, protection of your loved one. You know, so if you're in a tribe and someone says this person is demonically possessed and, and, and you believe it, uh, and this person is causing us all to go under a spell, or this person caused this child to die of malaria, um, you can get swept up in that. And that's fear, not just hate. It could be fear mm-hmm. and it could be uh, jealousy or, you know, or, or just. Um, or again, a sense of protection. I want to protect my family from this evil person. And um, people just copy the desires of those around them. Now, at a, at, a, at a day-to-day level, that causes a lot of obsessive rivalry because you can't really do a good job with your business when you're always fixated on beating your opponent. Because when you're fixated on beating your opponent, you're not actually fixated on doing an excellent job. So if your opponent says, red shirts are wonderful, and that you're going to say, well, I'm going to only wear blue shirts, okay? Well, that's not, you're, you're obsessing over your opponent rather than serving what your actual customer or service is that, that's needed to be done. And that can create dysfunction. And so all of that can build up and you have bad blood when everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else it's 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 going to be uh, inevitable that that's going to be a place of bad blood and dysfunction so and I want- if you can't turn those finger pointings 
into finger pointing in the same direction, then you're going to have a problem with creating cohesion and unity. Yeah, I want to run with uh, with, with uh, that train of thought that you were you were having, where um, you were talking about how you know basically groups, and you use the word uh, crowds, uh, I think, and uh, that kind of brings up my next question. That because uh, I think identifying crowds is a is a vital aspect of mimesis, since it relies on others and and groups of others. Um, there were there were two people who were kind of influential for me recently uh, another frenchman that's kind of a theme for tonight uh gerard elul and now there's this guy uh at the the turn of the 20th century uh named gustave lebon mm-hmm. and he wrote a book actually entitled the crowd and in it he talks about how the crowd actually when they get together they they kind of instead of being a bunch of individuals the crowd as a whole actually takes on a an identity of its own and uh, you know, he talks about how like these crowds will in mass perform an action, like a really heroic action, you know, like uh, an army telling all their people to do a suicide charge yeah. and, and they do it or even despicable acts like they'll they'll uh, you know, the lynchings are a great example of that. And we got this uh, this other guy a little bit earlier, but uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And he spoke uh, against the crowd. He actually has a book called uh, The Crowd is Untruth. And in that book, he has a, a quote where he says, a crowd in its very concept is untruth, since a crowd either renders the single individual wholly unrepentant and irresponsible, or it weakens his responsibility by making it a fraction of his decision. Mm-hmm. So I think both Laban and Kierkegaard have, have individuality as a good that has to remain in view, because in the crowd, a new entity, which is untruth, is formed. So you were just talking about the crowd and how that's important uh, for Gerard. Can you maybe discuss the importance that individuality plays in in being truly human and in in being on the right path? And how is it highlighted by Gerard? Yeah, I mean, you can see it with the uh, example of uh, the, the woman accused of adultery and that crowd truly believes that she's deserving of of destruction and you know jesus says who's going to cast the first stone which takes it 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 exercises the crowd out of the individual and typically pagan exorcisms are going to exercise the individual out of the crowd because he stood out right and that kind of scapegoat expulsion but with jesus you reverse that and you and you exercise the crowd out of the heart of the person and that's what that's what repentance looks like that's what following christ looks like exercising the crowd out of your heart because the crowd is a lie, and the crowd is something that possesses you in various different ways. Um, your family crowd, your community crowd, right? Your 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 ideology crowds. Uh, all, your neighbor that you're rivalrous with is a kind of crowd that's possessing you. If you get it on that obsessive one-upmanship or. Uh, uh, the uh, keeping up with the Joneses, like why are houses so big and huge and expensive, and why do they cost a million dollars to pay for? Because people need to keep keep up with the Joneses, right? And why do people subject themselves to Nazi-like HOAs that attack you for the grass blade being a half a millimeter too high? Because they're keeping up with the Joneses, and and so they're possessed by the crowd. So so much of our life is governed by 
unconscious possession by crowd feelings. And that crowd that was gathered to murder that woman, you know, Jesus says, He's who who's gonna cast the first stone? That he who is without sin cast the first stone. So that's what he says. He doesn't actually ask a question, but he, he says a statement which creates a question in the heart of the person listening. And so that is going to wake them up to their participation in the crowd. And uh, when you do that, you have an opportunity for nuance. <laughs> you say, wait a second, that rock's pretty big, and I don't want to be the one that throws the first stone because if I throw the first stone, you know, I might be the one that hits the biggest wound or, you know, hurts the person in the most egregious sense. That's pretty bold to do that on my own. And then you start thinking about, well, who is worthy? Because he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So now I'm thinking about, okay, am I the most worthy here? Or, you know, maybe that other person over there is not worthy to throw this stone because they've been in a bad behavior themselves. And so suddenly they're, they're losing their crowd unity. And now they're losing their mythology. In the sense, they're running narrative in their head, which is a kind of mythology in, in real time. And now they're going to lay down their stones, starting with the oldest, putting their stones down first rather than striking the woman. So that's an example of the crowd being cast out of the individuals. Uh, he does this with the uh, demoniac in the Gerasenes, the village of the Gerasenes, which is on the northern side of Galilee. And that was the only um, pagan town in that area at the time. It was installed by the Romans to be a model town of, of the good life of pagan grandeur. And uh, it was a little town that was going along, and they functioned with the Grinch. By the way, the Grinch is a, is a scapegoat murder. You know that too, right? Think about that. With the Grinch, why is the Grinch? It ends with a feast, which is kind of like this sublimated understanding that they ate the Grinch, the little who's. They were all united. Yeah. And that's they that's really Grinch. dark. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's a, it's a real real mythology in real time where they, they, they otherize the Grinch. They're writing it from the Who's perspective. You don't know the Grinch's perspective. It's right. They're writing his ugliness, his monstrosity into his name, which is what humans tend to do with their victims. So mythology is heavily symbolized because it's so far back in time it's so nice entrenched in the scapegoat mechanism that it generates a lie in what it creates it generates a lie in the sense that it says gods were killing this god or that god and this popped out the earth or this popped out water or so forth and so on it's very cartoonish and abstract and therefore we don't look at it as a cover-up for murder but what's going on is that when you murder a scapegoat, there's such a transformative experience of relief and such a unifying fence of oneness that comes from that experience of having overcome a common witch. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Remember that? They were, they were excited. They had catharsis. And they were united with Dorothy. And they were in ecstatic union together, the little munchkin land. And so that created a kind of high that created a meaning of, wow, man, that's a wonderful thing. So now, whenever there's a, a crisis of differentiation bur uh, burgeoning again, 
they'll say, well, what did our ancestors do? And they'll recreate that spontaneous murder, which was not a cynical plot to slander, but truly a, 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 a sincere, in their mind, perspective of trying to deal with the problem. And they'll recreate it in the form of ritual sacrifice. And that's why all the religions of the world do ritual sacrifice. That's why all the one of the most ancient forms of it is immurement, which is the laying of a of a victim in the in the beginning of a city, underneath the cornerstone that's laid down, and you lay a live victim underneath that stone, and you smash the stone onto them and kill them, and that's the blessing of the new city. Now the people, when you ask them why are we doing that, they're saying, well, we're doing that to not disturb to to appease the gods and the spirits so that they don't curse this new city or new town or new temple. But in reality, the gods are a projection of the crowd. The gods are what they project into the into the sky, which is a shared experience of transcendent oneness. Why do they say it's a god? Because they say, well, our ancestors said some strange person did these weird taboos and broke some taboos, and then we came together and they flew off into the sky and that's a cover-up for murder. They threw him off the cliff and uh, brought rain and sunshine the next day. And so the idea is that um, something could be so evil but yet also be so salvific. As a reminder to the people, this is what you do when you need to stave off runaway chaos and, and evil spreading. You give a sacrifice in honor of the original God who was himself a victim Right, but the crowd writes his story or her story for them, and writes the guilt into them, and that's why so many different gods have their early stories are pranks and tricks and mis and little, little uh, wicked little mischief deeds and taboo breaking things and and rape and bestiality, and then later on their stories as they continue are like, oh well, they saved us from a war, they saved us from an earthquake, or they saved us from this or that. Well, what you're seeing is a, a mythologization of the psychological transference from guilt, evil, demon, to salvific savior who just was trying to show us the way of peace and unity and, and, and how to overcome, you know, calamities in the future. Because it's not that the rain, it's not just that it's deadly that the famine is, is caused by the lack of rain. It's even more deadly what human beings do when they're very, very hungry and there's a lack of food, right? And so the way that the, the mimetic uh, contagion of violent aggression is just as much as a plague as the famine or the bug that's causing pestilence. And in ancient literature, they tend to associate social disorder as a synonym for plague. Excellent. Interesting. Yeah, this might uh, this might be a good time. Uh, I feel like you've you've kind of laid out uh, mimesis and and the crowd really well, uh, and how the crowd kind of um, guides our actions, uh, how we respond to the crowd. But you know, I, you've talked about something that's really fascinating to me as well, that deals with the crowd, but it it kind of actually seems the opposite at first. You talked about uh, reverse mimesis which is, is uh, this action that you sometimes see people take, which embraces the extreme almost for effect. And I, I, th I think you gave an example of something like, you know, this 
kid growing up in rural Kansas, like farmland. And all of a sudden one day uh, he or she walks into school and like, dark goth attire and like all this black eyeliner and stuff. And you're like, wow, they're, you know, they're an individual, but no, they're actually not really being an individual, even though though as an individual, they stand out a lot. They're still actually controlled by the crowd. So could you talk about this, uh, the reverse mimesis and how the crowd is still at play here? That's what everybody is a status. Then you become an anti-status because you want to stand out and be different. But do you really truly oppose the state by just criticizing the state? You see what I mean? Jesus didn't oppose the state by criticizing it. He wasn't a philosopher. He was a performance artist, so to speak. You know, he was doing action, you know, and that's how he changed the state is by performing signs and wonders and healing and disrupting their boundaries of violent differentiation and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's something that governs a lot of, of the lie of individualism and romantic uh, notions of the self, which is that, you know, we are, we are the, we are the fount of our desires and um, we, we choose, we choose what we want from some kind of objective, mysterious uh, stimulus in our hearts. Right. And uh, the case actually is that those who are more inclined to view themselves as unique little snowflakes are the ones most owned by the crowd. You know, when someone says, I have found my true identity and it's this, you know, 10,000th new gender that in their mind, they feel like they're the most unique little individual they've ever conceived of because they found the 10,000th new gender. But to everybody else who's not possessed by that same crowd spirit, they're going to say, actually, you know, you're, you're very much a part of the crowd. You would never have done this in 1999. You wouldn't have done this in 2004. You wouldn't have done this in 2010. You wouldn't have done this in 2016. You know, it's only, you know, you're a product of your age. And your desires are shaped by those around you. But we don't like to admit that. We always want to make it look like we were the ones that created it first. That's why people get really out of fashion when something becomes too popular. Like Jordan Peterson got really popular and then it became not as cool, right? He also associate. It also came along with some things that he came out with that people disagreed with, but then it became like really cringy and uncool to like Jordan Peterson because he hit a certain tipping point where he was really fashionable amongst even like baby boomers and stuff. And now his book was in Walmart and stuff. It was supposed to be something edgelord online. Once it became famous to a certain critical mass, it wasn't cool anymore. It's the same reason why people say, I like Star Wars before you did. But I was into skateboarding before you were into skateboarding. You copied me. I got you into it because we don't want to admit how much alike we are. And so we create these little running narratives in our hell in our in our heads called ourself. Ourself is an amalgamation of these little narratives that we tell to try to like create this unique individual island kind of distinction from another. And that's why people don't like it when someone imitates them too much. They want you to, people tend to want to be imitated, but from a distance. They don't want to be too imitated. You know, if they're too imitated, then they're going to be losing their sense of self. And then they're going to be in a state of like chaos. And I mean, you can see this on a surface level when you look at like, I've said before, like that monkey see monkey do thing where people copy what you say. And you just keep copying it. Have you ever done, have you ever seen a kid do that? 
I mean, I was a middle school teacher for a bit, so we got. I was a middle school teacher for a little bit, so (laughs) you know, you've heard them do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And they'll just go on and on and on, and it's so annoying, right? It's just so annoying because it feels like it's never going to end. I think that speaks to a little bit of the window of how human beings view mimesis when it's too close. It's maddening. There was a a movie called, um, what was the name of it? Um, No, it's a really good movie. It's called uh, The uh, Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer. I'd highly recommend it. It's a real-time case study in crowd violence and scapegoat lynching in the 1960s and today, dealing with Indonesia. And these guys were going around killing people who were suspected or falsely accused of being communists. And they were going around killing people and taking their stuff and and just going to these bloodbaths with machetes. And they said that after they would kill some of these people, the people are still alive. The perpetrators of these killings are still alive and they're in power. And they were saying, uh, we would drink the blood of our victims so that we wouldn't lose our minds. Remember what I said earlier? that the crowd is like a Pac-Man of sameness and it has to devour pellets of differentiation to keep its sameness going. I'm telling you, man, there's something there to that. Because they think, I mean, they're experiencing the very thing. It's like they have to devour their victim, which is wholly different from them, from their experience, in order to maintain their kind of ecstasy of unanimous violence that they're partaking in. Um, I think that's, very telling about scapegoats. I think, I think the fact that that certain, you know, like, you know, a lot of poor folks that were in uh, the South that were participating in lynchings of African Americans were terrified of losing their place in the pecking order, and they felt like they wanted to make sure that there was someone who would be considered wholly other in distinction from them being relatively wholly same as their richer, wealthier counterparts in the community by saying, well, we're united in killing this person in their otherness. Does that make sense? So you see this kind of attempt to, you know, I'm part of the, I'm unified because I'm terrified of that. Actually, if, if I don't unite in the explosion or devouring of this person in their property or their, dignity or life that somehow we'll actually be realizing that we're a lot closer than we thought. And that's going to create rivalry. Right. And then I actually, I could lose my position to become at the lowest of the pecking order. If I'm in rivalry and competition, so we have to destroy their businesses. Right. And always make people feel psychologically put down so that they don't compete and supplant them in the pecking order. And then if that happens, then they will be the candidate for sacrifice. Like what Trump supporters feel like they're being set up for, right? That, you know, no one stands up for the white working class people, they say. And what's happening is, is the elites are looking at demographics and everything that their trends and everything. And they're saying, okay, we're going to have a new scapegoat class. It's not going to be this minority group or that minority group or women in the 1810s or whatever. Now it's going to be, you know, Here's the scapegoat lottery, you know, (laughs) the demographics are as such. I'm not saying it happens randomly, but for whatever reason, it's now becoming that this group is the group that you can call uh, incestuous 
I mean, you can go, I mean, leftists will sit there on Twitter and stuff and say at a Trump rally, look how they're bred of incest. Look at their dental teeth, how ugly they're. Look at how low their IQ is. It's the only group you're allowed to talk about IQ. It's Trump supporters or, or you know, right-wing working-class people. You're allowed to impugn that. Um, you're allowed to talk about their weight issues. Like You're allowed to say Trump's obese or whatever. You're allowed to say that he has horrible skin complexion. Yeah, that, you're not allowed to talk about obesity in the, in the establishment religion for everybody else. Yeah, that's fa that's fascinating to me because I I hadn't thought about that before because there's so much uh, you know you talk about uh, um, on Elephant Man and you know how yeah. the, the standards of beauty and you know right now being overweight is kind of something that's that's elevated as beautiful unless you're part of the scapegoat class yeah but then you've got the the liberal media that talks about uh, you know well Trump eats like six uh, whoppers or whatever Big Macs a day and yeah I I never thought about that. Because you're supposed to become obese by eating uh, kale loaded with seed oil dressing, not, you know, <laughs> not the classic foods that got you obese. Uh, that's considered, uh, uh, you know, not, that's passe. But, you, but, but you get, again, no, like a lot, of a lot of the members of the Democratic Party coalition eat at McDonald's just like Trump, and they're not castigated for that. You're castigated for eating at McDonald's if you're with the identity group or whatever that's associated with Trump. Okay. Um, you, you're not allowed to talk about um, low IQ in any way, except if it's Trump supporters and, or, 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 or those types of people, working class uh, people. And you're not allowed to uh, talk about um, income, poor not talk, you're not allowed to talk about the poor being bad unless it's a MAGA route. Then you're allowed to talk about it with glee. Um, you're not allowed to talk about people dying from COVID unless you're Herman Cain and you go to a Trump rally. So, and, and that's, that's a narrative that's shared by much of the establishment media with glee, you know? Um, and it's a shame. And people recognize it, and it's unfair. Um, but every time people recognize it, they always point out, well, but there's all these other scapegoats that are in the Democratic brand. And so, you know, because whenever you're transitioning from one scapegoat identity group to another, it's not a clean break, right? So there's a transition. So you can always point and find examples of, of stuff that fits the pattern that, you well, know, no, 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 no. No white people are all or ever suppressed or ever. Never happens in ever. Since the dawn of time, since Neanderthals have existed, whites have been supremacists. And, you know, that's a stupid. It's just another mythology, right? Just another mythology. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the solution would be to not scapegoat at all, but uh, they feel like the, the way that you fix the previous scapegoat. Uh, the previous scapegoat. scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to uh, kind of move on to a, a different topic. We'll kind of bring this all back together in, in just a minute. Um, but, but it doesn't, the, by the way, fix it because the previous ones that were beneficiaries of the scapegoating of the original of the of the previous scapegoats, the people who benefited from that pecking order, are still at the top in the new pecking order. You know, it's never their kids that you know. Yeah. You know, no, nobody who's a Morgan, you know, or a Vanderbilt or whatever, is part of the team being pummeled by the new 
you know, you're the cause of all problems. They're happy. They're the ones putting on the Antifa mask and pretending to be communist ninjas, you know? Yeah. They're rich trust fund yeah. kids. <laughs> because the so, first shall be last and the last shall be first. And they're trying to imitate Jesus' aesthetic <laughs> by being a billionaire trust fund kid and dressing up as a ninja for communists. Because they're swimming in Jesus' fishbowl. So they have to play by those rules to try to have social clout. So they're like hermit crabs. They're they're hiding under little shells that are Jesus' aesthetics. We all are if we're rebellious. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm sure I am at times. Um in what one of the say now? You were said uh, yeah, I sure I'm sure I am at times too. Yeah. yeah. Um in one of your series that I, I listened to you, uh, it was really interesting because uh, it's, a, it's a topic that kind of fascinates me, uh, but you were talking about demon possession a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating to me because my family has, have, we've had a personal experience with that here in Romania, which I can talk to you about uh, if you're interested later. But um, you, know, you and your guests highlighted something that I really hadn't thought of before, which is um, the tendency for the demonic to isolate. Yeah. And the reason the reason that that was really interesting to me is because in propaganda, that's it's the same thing. Like when you get to abusers, a, a big tactic for abusers is to isolate individuals, uh, whoever the the victim is, to isolate them from the outside. You know, polarization, even though that's done in large groups, like done in crowds, Still, that crowd is isolated, right? If if I only watch Fox or I only watch CNN, uh, I might be a part of a ten million other people that do the same thing, but we're isolated in our group in an echo chamber. Um, so, what I would like for you to maybe briefly discuss is talk a little bit about the demonic and and the use of isolation as a tool to feed off of the isolation of uh, of others. I mean, that, that's a reference to the book. Well, one of the things we were talking about there was Hostage to the Devil by Malachi Martin, Father Malachi Martin. He wrote it in the 1970s. And in the different, he, he, he takes five contemporary, Amer at the time, American possession and exorcism stories. And he talks about the background of the priest and the person who was tormented by devils and goes through it that way. And there's two, there's different, thoughts about what's actually going on with possession. You can look at it from an anthropological perspective only and say it's not an entity being jumping into them, but rather if human beings are spiritual beings and we are made in the image of God and we have that divine spark with us and we're divine and we're divinely made in the image in such a way that we're shaped by the Trinity being relationship in one being then that means relationships around us, that's mimesis in, in the way it looks, is going to shape our being, you know, and we're going to be made to be in relationship with others to find our sense of wholeness and completeness because just like the Trinity is three in one, we're going to have uh, interrelationality involved in our very sense of wholeness of being, right? The problem is we idolize those neighbors and that becomes a scandal for us. But some would say that demonic possession is when those spiritual energies of mimesis are getting scrambled up because of sin or whatever, that you become possessed by voices of those around you to the point where you take on a different voice and you, have, and you manifest these spiritually bizarre behaviors. Now, other people take the more traditional classical approach of this is the story of 
the fallen angels that fell from Satan's choir and they're jumping into you. And I, I try to just have a conversation where you can look at it from both angles if you want to. Uh, but one of the things that's going to be clear uh, Jesus, uh, is that if we're made in relationship, then Satan is going to want to divide and conquer, right? Um, and so you can be very alone in a crowd. You know, you can be very alone in a crowd. You can be very isolated in a crowd if you're not in a loving relationship that is Trinitarian in its shape and meaning self-giving, reciprocal self-giving, reciprocal self-sacrificing, uh, um, right? Giving up one's right to oneself to make way for the other's needs. As your Heavenly Father does, you imitate that same pattern in your relationship of service and not reacting in a mimetically tit-for-tat way when they insult you, stopping the mimetic cycle by discharging it with joy or Aikido, by allowing them to see the futility of their action, like turning the other cheek is meant to show the stupidity of the whole insult doesn't bother me and it's discharged itself. Do you want another attempt to just insult me? Um, So, yeah, I mean, all of that, you know, Possession is going to drive you into isolation. You connected it to propaganda. Um, and that's interesting because I, I, I saw that Father Malachi Martin was brought in, did you know, by the U.S. government. And the Fort Bragg was where they did a lot of their psyops. They developed a lot of their psyops. And apparently one of them went really bad. Yeah, I heard you reference that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Malachi Martin was brought in to like do an exorcism on the base, and someone's making that into a movie. It'll be interesting to see if it's factual or accurate or whatever. But I thought that was really interesting that, like, you know, the very sources of a lot of these, the finest propaganda the world's ever seen, in some cases with Hollywood and stuff, and our government, that they were getting into this stuff and it got in, they, they, they felt the need that they needed to bring in an exorcist to clean up the mess they had made. And it makes you wonder, you know, how these things work and what does it mean to wrestle against principalities? And, and, and what does it mean that Satan is the prince of the air? And so much of our thoughts are shaped by words that are spoken into the air through media and um, uh, radio airwaves are blanketing you with their, you know, and, and I think there's something to it that, you know, in a physics sense, the, the the messages and the emotions and the intents and the passions that you send in a message on radio, on FM and AM, is actually literally physically subconsciously saturating the community that it's coming around in the tower. So you're almost being, if it, like imagine in an experiment, if everybody's saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you on every radio station, and you're not listening to any of them, you're actually subconsciously being bathed in, in magnetic frequencies that are carrying that, that spirit of I hate you. Think about that for a moment, what that could do for the human mind. And now think about all the programming that you're bathed in when you're driving in their car and you're not listening to any of that, and yet people are listening to music that draws out the passions for envy and lust and all that stuff. And you're soaking yourself subconsciously on a vibrational level and, uh, and messages which are isolating and alienating and nihilistic. No wonder people feel like they deal with, you know, problems with despair and they don't know where it comes from. Yeah. So I want to, I want to kind of jump on one of the 
the ideas that you're having in there. Um, because if, I think this, the question about the demonic and isolation seems like it's, it's like, well, you know, where does that come from? How does that fit in? But you talked about community and I think, I think while I, while I was thinking through mimesis and I was thinking about crowds and masses, I'm like, well, then it seems like if the problem is the crowd, then it seems like the best thing to do is to be isolated, like to isolate myself from the crowd, to be separate. Uh, of course, as a Christian, I know that's not true. Sometimes but, Jesus did that. Sometimes he got away from the crowd to go rest and get away from it. Right. But uh, you use the word community and Laban and and others use the word crowd. And I think we can maybe make a distinction. Can you explain um, we need community, but we don't want to be part of the crowd. What's the difference between community and crowd, and how do we make sure we're plugged into the the right thing, the community? Well, a community is one that recognizes that we're all sheep, and that much of this it, community is about recognizing and being aware of your passions and why they're now. It would help you to actually understand how much it is mimetic, but at least to be suspicious of your passions is a good start. And that's what Christianity has been able to do, even though it doesn't get you the full, you know, most people don't understand the full mimetic package of, of the whole thing. Right. Um, and that, and that doesn't give the full picture, but yeah, I mean, that's that the crowd is the kind of breakdown byproduct of a community that's in dis that's in dysfunction, right? A community that's in, in a state of, of, of charged up energy ready to offload onto somebody as a, as a punching bag. Um, a community is one in which you are learning to get along together nonviolently by maintaining differences without violence, right? Maintaining differentiation without the threat of coercion to do it. So that's the idea is like, can a society, for example, the drug war, you know, can a society uh, stamp out um, drugs through the use of coercion or can it use the social ordering principle of turning of the cheek, which would allow the, uh, uh, the competition of drug dealers to be able to extinguish their ability to have the kind of stored up capital to control neighborhoods and communities generationally. Uh, Jesus's social Aikido principle allows overreach of ambition in the black market to dismantle its ability to maintain the kind of obscene profit margin that it was holding by having a black market. In other words, nonviolence is an, as a proactive social ordering Aikido principle that allows you to dismantle uh, overreach and evil by not mirroring it back. So can you get along? Can you can you deal with drug abuse without putting people in rape cages? Do you need the scapegoat ritual sacrificial type vestige that you see with our mass incarceration state? Do you need that in place to maintain order? Or can you use nonviolent creative means of getting people to lose their sight and desiring drugs? If you get rid of a sick culture, would it make people not desire drugs as much? If you stop using sacrificial violence to try to failingly stop a drug trade, when in reality it creates the obscene profits for it, then, you know, if you can't learn how to stamp it out nonviolently, it won't result in anything but more and more dysfunction and chaos. 
right? Because people are not afraid of the law right now. People are, are you know, serving time, they get out, they serve time, they get out, they serve time, they get out. And obviously the law is not working. Obviously they're, they don't respect or fear the law. The level of coercion that's being employed by the law is not apparently strong enough to deter the action that's supposed to be being deterred. You see what I mean? So there's a fundamental existential crisis of differentiation and to the point where we are so not interested in using the level of violence that we used to use before Jesus' cultural infection that we don't even want to fathom the kind of brutality that would be necessary in the public square to get people to respect those acts of imposition of force. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. You see, because I think this is an important part, and I don't talk about this part a lot, but it's so it's so important. I call it the impotence of sacrifice. The sacrifice can't create catharsis. It can't create believability because we're not willing to do the level of violence necessary. We don't believe in the level of violence that we used to believe. Used to be there was a kind of semi-catharsis that could happen if you were throwing the witch you know, into the water. But now people are like, no, that's too cruel. That's too mean, right? And so there's no appetite to do the kind of unanimous attack and unanimous brutality to kind of put an end to it. Well, yeah, and we, we even hide them. I mean, prisons are hidden. Like nobody wants to see what happens to people now. Right. And um, you're hiring people to do things for you that you wouldn't do yeah. yourself. Exactly, yeah. Which is a kind of mimetic discharging. So so the prison guards are a kind of scapegoat, and the prisoners are a scapegoat, right? So there's different layers of scapegoats where you can kind of offload your guilt and participation in the collective act. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, it damages all parties, the prisoners, the pr- prison yeah, guards, you know, children. police, uh, military, like all of those occupations. Um it it damages them with PTSD. But they reject the turning of the cheek principle, which is why they have the power to do the kind of drug cartel stuff in the first place. And the national conservatives think they're so tough because they want to increase, you know, incarceration. But it's like, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You're just wrong. They keep saying fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. But I mean, and I understand that. That's a little tricky one. I'll be honest with you. I mean, you know, the idea of having fentanyl distributed around freely in, in bubblegum machines, that's not what would happen. But I'm just saying, you know, in a free market. I mean, that if you think about it, you can see, oh, that's pretty scary. And then you have to factor in the question of, like, foreign nations. If what they're saying is true, that China is pumping that in to try to, like, get back at us for what we did with the opium thing to them, I don't know. But when you're dealing with the nation level, uh, you know, warfare. I mean, then maybe there is a place to 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 stop that at the border or wherever it's coming from, if that's true. You know, that's the narrative I've heard. Yeah, but the idea of using that they use that as a cover to go along with the nonviolent crime laws that we have for everything else, um, and they they don't work. They don't, so they're, so they're, so they are brutal and violent in a slow way, you know, but they're not vicious enough to deter. (laughs) So it's like the worst of both worlds. Like I said, if you want, I mean, if people, these little nat conservatives people, I mean, if you want to stop marijuana, they don't want marijuana distributed, want to be criminalized. 
you'd have to do like crucifixions in the public square to get people to be so horrified that they wouldn't risk it. You know what I mean? If they saw people like moaning and groaning with crucifixions all through their town square and the sheriff said, this is what's going to happen to you. And we're going to put this on public access TV. You'd be like, holy shnikes. I don't know if I'm going to sell this bag of weed. I think this actually deterred me. <laughs> But when it's kind of like you go into prison for this many days, you get meals, you get street cred back from home when you get out, you, you know, you get to join a gang, you get to still do drugs inside the prison or sell them. You can study, get a degree. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's kind of a way you weigh stuff, you know? Now it does dehumanize you and it does strip fathers away from kids and mothers away from their children and, and horrific things. But it's kind of, you see what I mean? It's like a slow uh, de uh, mutate uh, degradation where it's not like acute, like, you know, like public crucifixions, you know, or floggings or something like no one would do that. You're not allowed to do that. And now, and, and then those little people that want their right wing Caesars, they'll say, well, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. But they're just, they're just, they're just fantasizing, you know, because they'd be, you know, there's, I mean, you know, all it takes, I mean, they could make a thing that you should get flogged for doing zoom too much. And all these little national conservatives would get flogged in the public square. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause they'd say that degenerate to do zoom too much. You should be out in the sunshine eight hours a day or something. You know, I mean, you know, you can, if you go too far with that, there's really, it's just nihilism of a different type. And they use that word too, anarcho-tyranny, but that's what they're calling for, really, when they go too far with these things. Speaking of doing Zoom too much, I want to respect your uh, your hour here. So I'm going to try to uh, go quickly through just a, just a couple of final questions that I think are going to help sure. to, to pull everything together. Um, so... You know, one one of the things that I I've respected about the shows that I've listened to. You know, I don't agree with you on everything, um, but I like that, and, and I like that uh, you don't you don't agree with the right on everything or the left on everything. In fact, so far in our discussion, you've called out both sides on on various different things. Um, and when we're talking about community, one of the things that that uh, stands out to me. You know, from the Bible, when it talks about uh, building a, a good community, it says speaking the truth in love, right? So those two components, truth and love, go together. And, um, you know, one of the things I feel like you do is that, uh, and a community is supposed to do, is to deal with hard truths, truths that people don't want to hear. So, I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about a bunch of different things. The one that stands out to me, you know, you talk about gender identity, and that being a truth that uh, you deal with that the left doesn't want to hear. But what I, I loved in your conversations that I heard you talk about that, you also kind of go against the right and their vilification of, of people who, you know, have, have these different ideas about gender identity and just talking about how the right wants to scapegoat them. And so it seems like, uh, the the idea uh, Gerard's ideas and uh, your Christian ideal kind of drives you to speak truth, but to also have have love towards both groups, and so you're able to kind of split the middle of the left and the right, and and go wherever truth leads you, and wherever truth leads you, you're able to speak to the other side or each side in in love. Can you talk a little bit about 
truth and love? <laughs> that, that's not really a, a very specific question, but maybe talk about how you're guided by those things and why that's important. Yeah. I mean, I mean if you, you know, there's a subjective element to truth in that sense of being, you know, in love. And so, you know, if you go up to somebody who was a pretty rotten or mixed bag at someone's funeral, you know, who was a mixed bag and really did some bad things and you go up to their grieving child and say, let me tell you the truth about your dad as a horrible human being to me is that it could be factually true, but it's not ecstatically true. Right. You see what I mean? That's, that's not true to say that it's not true to relationality to say that. Um, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we have to keep in mind is that, you know, the right likes to play the role of the teacher's uh, clown, you know, the one that will act up and say the irreverent thing and they get the laughs as they get sent to the principal's office and they get the F, but they get their attention economy that way. And they can build their little cottage boycott, you know, countercultural grift machine off of that, of the principal banning them off of a platform and then them complaining about it and getting notoriety. Just like the war on drug person, by the way, you know, you know, it's the same thing, actually. They're doing, they're in the, that's the black market. So they're in the social black market. That's what they are. That's an interesting thing I have to remember there. That's the social black market that they're in, you know, and they exist because of the prohibition of ideas, right? In the official market on the Tonight Show and everything else, the Grammys and Hollywood movies and so forth. So you have to. You have to, um, you know, just be mindful of the fact that when you're dealing with problems as they're presented in your culture, they're going to be in the context of two warring mimetic doubles. And Gerard calls mimetic doubles those people who are so caught up in rivalry that they look the same to an outside observer, but to themselves inside the rivalry, they look farther apart than they could ever imagine. I think you yeah. you use Peter and Malchus. You, yeah. you call them mimetic doubles as a good yeah. example. Yeah, because they're both the servants of their respective high priests, and you have to decide which one you want to be. And in terms, they both fail really. But you're given the option to follow the, the Christ way by obeying what Jesus says and not using the sword to strike at the other high priest who is of the sword, and he will live by the sword and die by the sword. So you have to come with a spirit of trying to be a peacemaker. Now, a peacemaker, it's easy to play that role and be a moderate conservative, like a Mitt Romney. That's the fake version of it, right? You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of people that say, oh, David sounds like a Mitt Romney or some of these uh, National Review people, right, who are always talking about have, you know, the kinder conservatism while they want to, you know, murder half a million Russians with glee like Lindsey Graham. And you're like, what? Wait a second. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. That's another fake rip off of the Christian way. You know, the Christian way is, you know, trying to deal with the thing as it actually is and not doing this mushy middle thing where you say, well, both are equally wrong and both are equally right. No, no. I mean, if you're supporting, you know, murder, it's, there's no moderate position on that. It's just not right, you know, and it might be complicated to explain how that works, but, you know, there's a way to get to the truth. So I think that's what we got to do. 
when we keep in mind that when we're entering into the debates of our time, it's going to be a mimetic doubling, which means there's no really good truth in that. And the truth is the mimetic doubling and how alike the rivals are and how possessed by the crowd that they are and how they're missing out on so much opportunity. Like why fight about, you know, like a lot of people having gender dysphoria is because of seed oil. So get the seed oils out of the way and you'll solve a lot of the gender dysphoria naturally. I mean, literally, we had Dr. Kate Shanahan talk about the science behind that. Taking it, see, Christians take a dispassionate view when it comes to matters of solving problems in the world, right? And they go to the aid of the pagan, even in the time of the Roman plague, even when the pagan was laughing at them as their family members were being torn apart by lions in the gladiatorial games. They went to their aid and took care of their pagan neighbor who was sick and gave them water and so forth and, and, and tried to bring them back to life when their pagan friends wouldn't help their pagan neighbor. Yeah, that's speaking truth to love, right? Action. I think that uh, that right there is a, a really good segue for for the last question um, because there's there's something I've heard you bring up quite a lot, and I think what you what you just said um, kind of resonates on that same tune. Uh, you know, talking about the plague victims and and loving our enemies and those sorts of things. It it seems like historically Christianity's message has spread and true solid Christianity has come, you know, as Tertullian said, uh, the, the, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, the church has, has grown in quality and quantity through touching on this, this note that nobody else touches on, you know, everybody else is trying to sacrifice other. Um, but the, the Christ way is to be a, a sacrifice to, to end that scapegoating and to be willing to lay down our own lives, to love our enemies uh, and you you call, I mean, maybe not just this idea, but this this kind of general concept. You talk about a Christ haunted world, and um, you know that it reminded me when you when you said Christ haunted worlds. Uh, I just read a book this year by Carl Sagan, which you're probably familiar with because you're you're into science. But um, he has he has a book entitled "The Demon Haunted World: uh, Science as a Candle in the Dark." So a lot of that book is is really about him. He's trying to get people to see the world as he says that it truly is rather than how those people perceive it or want it to be. Cause that's generally how we tend to see things. And the way that he, he does this is he says it, this happens through science, right? The world is illuminated through science. And it, uh, the title kind of reminds me of, you know, like the old maps they used to have at the edge of the, the map, it said here be dragons, right? It's kind of like a dragon haunted geography. So we we fill in our ignorance with with superstitions like dragons or demons or the god of the gaps. So, uh, you know, science has been truth. It's been a light in the dark, but it, I think you and I would agree that it's it's been an inadequate light. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of recognizing our world as a Christ haunted world, and how is is recognizing this um, Jesus? How does that illuminate more fully than than Sagan's science and and any other path that people are trying to take? Because Sagan probably, and I don't know him too well, uh, but he probably would have taken the same position of Neil deGrasse Tyson and going along with the experts about like this disaster we had with public health. Okay, so he doesn't have a scientific mind in that sense. 
right? He has a scientism mind. That's an in crowd. It's another priestly caste that has some auspices of scientific rigor, but really at its core is a deeply suspicious of moving away from its authority figures and dogmas. And one of its blind spots is being a sucker for prestige and expert status. And when these types of folks like Carl Sagan see that you have a PhD from a certain Ivy League school on a particular expertise subject matter, that's going to give them a blind spot to say, well, they are an expert and I'm going to trust Fauci on this because I'm a scientist and I'm very smart. And it's like, no, you're, you're, you're just completely mimetically owned. And, and in that sense, you're extremely religious. Because the word religion means to bind together, and they're built on scapegoats too, by the way. They're disciplines. Like physics is rarefied because it continually expels people uh, from its camp that defy the dogmas of, of, of its established textbook canons of what is physics and what is an atom and what is this and what is that. Look at Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman, 1989. They believe they've discovered what is called cold fusion. And because they are chemical engineers dabbling in the world of the word fusion, now they're in the world of physics. Physics outranks that in the pecking order of scientism uh, and academia. And therefore, if you're going to use those terms that they were using, there's certain dogmas about what's to be expected, like gamma rays and so forth are to be measured by these things. And they couldn't produce the type of, you know, results that, that their official definition of nuclear fusion was supposed to have. That's word thinking again, right? This is if you're saying this is fusion, you have to do this instead of just like looking at okay, let's see exactly what happened here. Is there anything here that maybe we need to go back and go back to the founding books about what is fusion and what is nuclear energy and how do these things work and how do elemental transmutation work? They couldn't do that because they were blinded by religious superstition, just like Carl Sagan was. So he's completely religious in the, in the Durkheim sense of the word, of like a social structure, right? And, they, and, he's, and he's completely misunderstanding to the point where he's taking an ideological explanation for religion being fantastical beliefs and a god with a beard, right? So they, they, they otherize and they truncate and they idealize. They, they turn it, they turn the metaphysics of Christianity into the kind of like, this is what it means to have religion. They cartoonize it. They strawman it. And they point out things in the text that only a fool who doesn't know how to read the text would say is in the text. And then they say, I'm not that. And I went to a prestigious school and I hang out with prestigious people with prestigious wine glasses. So therefore I'm intelligent. And therefore, this is what intelligent people, I have mimicked others that talk a certain way, and I'm going to talk a certain way. Intelligent people in my field don't believe in God, so I don't believe in God. Right? It's just pure mimesis. It's not actually, they're completely owned by the sheep matrix. All we like sheep have gone astray, each into our own way. The sheep thinks he's going his own way, and in reality, he's going in the way of the herd. They don't know it. The only way to become a true scientist in a true sense of discovery is to imagine and to, to realize that nature that you have, to be extremely, to have a hermeneutic of suspicion about rarefied dogmatic fields of knowledge, but also to be intelligent enough to not fall prey to every false, stupid alternative theory that comes along as well. That's a hard thing. 
because that takes a lot of hard work. And people not- want easy answers. They want the establishment line or they want to pick some dumb alternative <laughs> community and just mimetically be a mere opposite, right? Like I told you, the goth kid with the country kid. Yeah. Right. Could you could you compare that to the Christ haunted world and and how is that different or better? Well, Christ haunted world just is is the reference to the idea that everything in our world is moving towards what he said it was going to move towards. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And um, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in order to get power, you have to mimic that and emulate that aesthetic in some way to try to get social status and currency within the general public. And those who are war profiteers and oligarchs and so forth know that better than Christians do, apparently. And so they play into that. And, um, you know, if you want to follow Christ, you have to repent of your participation in scapegoat violence. You have to, you have to be aware of your the illusion of your of your distinct self being some kind of island of desires that it, that you that you come up with on your own you have to uh, get rid of your uh, envy and your desire to have social status to the point of doing really stupid things and then free your mind it, you know t- jesus teaches us how to think and once you learn how to think then you can go up to a field that says, oh, we've already established this is possible, this is possible, that's not possible. And you say, I will move that mountain because I have trust in Jesus, that's faith. I have trust in Jesus' way uh, being the superior way. That that Because again, those fields are based on scapegoating. They expel people. They expelled Martin Fleischmann was dis, was like discredited. He was a top of the line chemist. Stanley Pons is still in hiding in France. You think I'm joking when I say they're scapegoats? They're scapegoats. He still won't come back to America. He was a U.S. citizen. He won't talk to anybody about it. He's in hiding. He don't want to be talked to. You see what I mean? So that's what science tism is really about. That's what Fauci did. He expelled people. He was trying to censor people and get people off of Twitter. That's what they do. They're no different than Caiaphas. It is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. It's better that one chemist lose his career than the whole profession perish if we have to rethink what it means to have an atom. Ba-bam. That's, that's your answer to Carl Sagan. A Christ-haunted world gives you the impetus to be able to see past the crowd and being able to have the courage to think for yourself, not react against the crowd, to think for yourself, which is very difficult to do. Uh, and then to, um, to, to be able to stand in solidarity with the misfits and the victims over your age, no matter which ideology tells you not to do that. That is a, a great, fantastic ending. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day and, uh, and being willing to do this. Yeah. Great questions. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist. When I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.